2: Sunday night edition of the pod. Danny and I are going to do our first draft profile. Didn't have to watch a lot of film on this one because there wasn't a ton to go around. James Wiseman and Ben Taylor is going to be on later to do our daily COVID-19 briefing. Thanks to everyone who has commented on that. I, we really appreciate all the positive feedback on it. It sounds like from what I've been able to tell, there are not really that many people out there doing something like this. So the idea is you listen to it. You get your 30 minutes or so of COVID news. Everyone needs that. But then you can go on about your day and hopefully not be consumed by the news. Uh, Ben and I are spending hours every day trying to aggregate uh, the biggest stories together and talk about them. So you don't have to spend that much time doing that. So if you haven't given that a listen yet, hopefully uh, it'll prove useful to you. Danny and I also recorded over the weekend, a mailbag, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. Also a great way to support us here and get some access to our show notes, access to that monthly mailbag podcast also. So thanks again for listening and for whatever you can to support us uh, during these difficult times. And even if you can't, or you, uh, have to unsubscribe for patreon due to your own financial pressures Uh, we understand that as well but it's just good to have this community and to get all of your support we really appreciate it okay Danny tell us about James Wiseman give us the 10,000 foot view here
1: Wiseman was the most touted member of the 2019 high school class so the class that that went in so that would make him a college freshman this past year he was the Gatorade player of the year he was ESPN and Rivals number one high school recruit ended up going to Memphis he had a relationship with Penny Hardaway that predated Penny Hardaway being the head coach coach at Memphis, which ended up becoming part of the eligibility problem with it. But Wiseman, his physical tools are really are, are really a part of that appeal. Per our our friend John Gavoni of Draft Express at the Memphis Pro Day, Wiseman measured up seven feet, two hundred and forty seven pounds, with a 7'5 wingspan and nine six standing reach. Ooh. For those who for those who listened to the Patreon mailbag, we talked about Brook Lopez's standing reach, which is also nine So that is. Uh, a, I thought he
2: was 9'5, actually.
1: Yeah, it might have been, but anyway. Yeah. And, so he's and so. Uh,
2: Gobert is nine yeah. seven. Yeah, I think to, that's give right. you, to give you some yeah so there was uh, so uh, the, but gobert is a bigger wingspan but correct uh, that it's still nine six standing reaches massive
1: it's absolutely massive and that meant that there was a lot of excitement for what wiseman could be he was uh, uh, intended to start in this five freshman lineup for the memphis tigers but he only played a total of 69 minutes for them due to a mix of injuries and ineligibility and That made it, I would say, harder to watch the film, the film for him. But I will say, so Wiseman was the second player that I watched. I won't name the first one, though some of you could probably guess. And I watched him second, and I was much more optimistic about the small amount of film I got to watch, because at least there were some things that I could, you know, sink my teeth into.
2: Yeah, maybe he'll end up being this year's Darius Garland, where everyone else is flawed. There's only a little bit of film on him, and so he ends up rising above them just because we know that it's not as bad as some of the other guys. Uh, yeah, that, that didn't yeah.
1: work out. My feelings on Darius Garland aren't are feeling super good right now, but
2: yeah, you know, no, that's true.
1: But that doesn't—that's not predictive of Wiseman in any way.
2: Well, so what were you encouraged by then? I, I'm in, intrigued to hear that.
1: A basic point was. That he his effort level I thought was pretty good you know he's he was even when he was attacking the offensive glass he was largely trying to get back and that's a real double that that can be a challenge for big men in the NBA and remember he's a highly touted recruit he only played in three games but he was still he was still trying you know I, in the Oregon game that was something that stood out to me his you could he uses his physical tools I think pretty well on the defensive end I have some misgivings with it on the offensive end. But the combination of like, pretty go- of, like, pretty good and in certain ways great physical tools and a reasonable amount of effort, I think there's a lot of feel stuff that he needs to improve on. But he's a 19-year-old kid. I think that a lot of that stuff can get better. And so I, I think more of the building blocks—actually, sorry, he's 18. He'll turn 19 in a couple of days—that um, the building blocks there are, are reasonably good. Yeah, you mentioned
2: how hard he plays. And with these physical tools,
1: more than anything
2: else, that's really the number one question. Because if you have these physical tools and you play hard, you're going to be a solid player in the NBA. And I agree with you. I think he plays reasonably hard. I didn't see many plays where I was just like, okay, this effort is unacceptable. But I also didn't see plays where I was like, oh my God, this guy is is playing really hard. Now, reports are that... He really struggled with playing hard earlier in his career. So I think he has improved in that area, according to, I haven't seen him his film from two years ago, but one of the things that I think stood out was that, yes, he has improved. That was the talk of the Nike Hoop Summit, where I thought he had a pretty good showing. There are also some weird instances where he just sat out practice and, and didn't necessarily have a, a great reason for that, uh, according to, I think it was Mike Schmitz uh, who mentioned that in one of his pieces about him. But when he was out there, I thought he looked like he was trying to assert himself on the game to some degree. And so I'm not wowed by his effort, but I'm not like, oh, this guy's a dog either.
1: Right. And I think that one of the kind of one of the things that you look at for a big man running the floor, both directions, you know, offense to defense, defense to offense. And I thought I actually liked in some ways his defense to offense more, that it can be the more energizing one. You can think of Willie Cauley-Stein, numerous other guys for that, but but w- one of the things I really liked about Wiseman's tape was that on both ends of the four, but especially on defense, he he, w- he was into the kind of the jostling, not conceding position pre-catch. And a lot of big guys, especially when they have the physical tools, don't really care as much about that. So like in the Oregon game, yeah, he had a big size advantage, but he wasn't like letting his cover get into the basket. He was, you know, pushing out. He was making sure that that they didn't get anything. And it's you know, it's a lot harder to do that against Nikola Jokic than it is some, you know, a six eight guy at Oregon. But I still liked that he tried because you have to do that at the bare minimum.
2: Yeah, you got a lot of crap for that Oregon game, like being so terrible. I didn't see that. I thought he no, just, I thought he I... got he, he got a bullshit second
1: foul. Oh my god. I wrote I <laughs> here, do you want me to read you my note from that? Oh um, desperately. Uh so let me see if I can his second his second foul is a shitty offensive foul call where the guard slid under him after the catch. College refs, dot dot dot. Like, it was a terrible call yeah it
2: was just he catches the ball comes to a jump stop as he's catching the ball on the roll and some little guard falls down and he gets the and, second foul. and
1: and penny sits him for the entire rest of the half he played five minutes in the first half of that game which ended up being the only college game he played against like against a uh a potential ncaa tournament team
2: yeah I and mean, they played against uic and they were ahead i think like 75 to 28 at one point in that game and uh against like south carolina state directional school or something like that, the other one
1: i, 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 really I will so say that it was that it situation. was satisfying to like with the cadets footage to be like oh yeah I can watch everything that he ever did <laughs> you know like I watched I watched a full game I, I was gonna watch a, another full game of, you know like a different thing but then also saw all of the like accumulated like every time he touched the ball all that type of stuff it was nice to be able to do that with a player um but so I think that leads into some of the stuff D de- all I, I think defense you know he's a center defense is more important um, when he switched out onto guards, I thought there were some things that I liked, some things that I didn't. He you know, he he's a little bit like his feet aren't moving as well as you hope. It's not like the short the, the shorter choppy steps that you kinda like there, but he can recover and cover ground. So I think I when I watched the film on I was like, Oh, you know, there are things that he could be doing better, his instincts might not be great there. But I didn't see things that were just like fatal flaws. Well,
2: let's let's actually back up for just a second to put into context his defensive work just to, a little bit more on his physical profile. You sure. gave the measurements, but he is fluid for a big a, of that size, I would Agreed. say. I mean, he's not, you know, breathtaking speed in transition, but he, he does move it at a good pace, I think. I would consider his lateral movement, at least from a natural standpoint, to be above average. As a leaper, I mean, he can get his head up close to the rim, but he, you know, he is seven foot, seven one. Um, seems to be a little more comfortable jumping off a two feet than one foot. I haven't seen him really just go over guys like crazy, especially off at two feet. You know, I consider him a solid athlete with great size, uh, more than a great athlete. Um, The physical analog is Joel and Pete, very similar measurements to Joel Embiid he doesn't have the level of feel the level of fluidity that Embiid did in college I would say he's maybe a little bit better of a leaper than Embiid was I I think he's he's gonna be a good alley-oop threat not like an unbelievable alley-oop threat like you know just a crazy corner of the backboard type of guy but he's got a real nice range. he can power up off of two feet under the basket for a dunk uh, which especially off the offensive glass get in for some tip dunks uh, a lot of his offensive work was actually on the offensive glass because this this Memphis team didn't in the one game at least that he was playing against a real competition didn't do a great job of getting him the ball to go one-on-one um and strength-wise I mean the 247 pounds I think his frame is going to fill out to where he can have above average strength for a center I mean he's not going to be you know I don't think he's going to be a 280 pound Yusuf Nurkic Joel Embiid Steven Adams yeah type of guy i mean i think he could get close to now that level of physicality he's probably not gonna have but right. I, I mean i think he can be like a cut 260 i mean that is especially oh, i think with that's his, totally
1: possible i think he gained yeah. gavoni had this i think he i can't remember how much weight he gained between like the end of his freshman year and this pro day
2: but it was it was a bunch you mean the end of his senior year of high school yeah yeah um and I thought, and even I mean, just when you look at him physically, you walked into the gym at the Nike Hoop Summit not knowing anything about him, and you're like, "Oh, that's James Wiseman. That's the guy that people are talking about." Like, he just stands out physically, even in, in a room of elite prospects. Um, so now, now you're starting to talk a little bit about his defense. I think his lateral mobility, as we we're saying, is pretty decent. I would consider his feel to be slightly below average defensively be i think a lot of that is technique as well i think he's very handsy when he he'll you know, put his hands on guys get called for fouls uh, on switches he'll not press up quite far enough on good shooters like peyton pritchard hit a three in his eye in a critical critical moment of that oregon game uh where they're switching he didn't move up now he was trusted to do a lot of switching i think his mobility is above average at the nike hoop summit game against the portland generals uh, Jaden McDaniels actually was on that team and he's, he's about a six foot 10 lanky Ford with some ball handling skills, but not a ton of quickness. And he tried to put Wiseman in the mix a couple of times. Wiseman stayed with him, really bothered his shot a, a couple of times in that hoop summit scrimmage the, a couple of days before the actual game. Uh, so he, he looked pretty good there. I thought he just uh, overall that hoop summit week and then in the hoop summit itself his shot blocking is really good i think he had six blocks in the hoop summit but he still doesn't really have a ton of technique as far as verticality is concerned he's very jumpy jumps at a lot of pump fakes he's not the quickest off the ground i would say either he's got to kind of load up a little bit more um and so when i say he's jumpy he'll load up and he'll jump and then the pump fake he'll, he'll get caught in the air come down with his arms down get called for fouls that way but as a guy coming over from the weak side, he showed impressive quickness getting from one side of the lane to the other and blocking shots in the air when guys don't see him coming. But those those plays are spectacular, but they're not quite the nuts and bolts verticality rim protection that really is there on a play-to-play basis in the NBA.
1: Right, and it can be a challenge. I mean, the feel generally to me is something that you kind of either have it or you don't. That was part of why Joel Embiid's film was something that impressed me so much was that he was a young guy who hadn't played the game for so long, but it looked like he was in the right place all the time. Something I really liked about Jaron Jackson as well. And some of that concerns me, but also I thought that some of the approach— and you know like that play on Pritchard he was more scared of the drive than the shot but Pritchard was gonna he wanted the shot instead of the drive so that's knowing the personnel knowing the situation being a little bit more comfortable in your teammates and everything like that but some of that also could have been scheme like some of the issues I had with Wiseman offensively might have been might not have been him it might have been what they were telling him to do but so I, when I when I watched the film of him defensively I thought you know it's not elite 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 tools but the a lot of the things that he did that i didn't like could be coached up not to like an elite level but to like a very good level and then the tools were also of course were, were also strong
2: yeah i mean if you look at his physical tools he has defensive player of the year type of physical tools i would say yeah i would um, say
1: he's like kind of a, a because of the lateral quickness difference he was like a little bit lower than somebody like anthony davis to me but kind of in that next tier. and i mean that was part yeah. of why i love davis's tools so much
2: yeah it's not quite and he doesn't have the natural timing of someone like davis he doesn't have the help instincts he definitely is a, an evolving player and can he continue to evolve that's a, one of the big questions he definitely has improved as a shot blocker over time. That's what everyone saw. I think as a defense. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: One of my favorite plays that he had was in that, was in that Oregon game. I think it was a Coro and Wiseman went over to the the, Memphis was playing two bigs at the time. And I think Wiseman was guarding the four. He went over to the big, who had the ball forced the pass and then got over to his own man, which was a Coro and was able to stop the shot too. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's not necessarily the type of situation you'll see all the time in the NBA, because most teams don't play two guys, in the paint, but just to be able to cover that short area and be able to get there before the shot went up was something I really liked.
2: Yeah, and I, I thought the those plays were rare. Uh, yes, because the second the multiple efforts were not there. I think he was making the first effort. Sure. You know, if you had to compare him to say, you know, a DeAndre Ayton, I would consider who another guy who you could say probably has similar physical tools. I'd actually say Ayton maybe is more advanced as a switch defender than he is. But I think his feel is better. His uh, got a little bit more bounce, I would say, uh, than Ayton. Uh, more ability to come across, get shots in the air uh, than Aiden does. So I would say that he is beyond where Aiton was defensively now the fact that Aiton had a a whole college season of experience and James Wiseman missed out on that is not going to be fantastic I think that more than maybe anybody his type of game for a lot of these bigs like they really need to play they need to get experience especially defensively just working out in an empty gym we'll talk about his offense in a little bit here but just working out in an empty gym that's not a great setting for him to really work on the things uh, that he needs to work on which a, a lot of his feel
1: agreed and i i one of the things that i've talked with more than anything with nba players is the adjustment as a big man going from college to the pros and a lot of times i was talking with three and four year guys like damian jones or uh festus Zeely. i think festus went to white you know those, those type of guys are talking about man this is so much different in the nba Wiseman's effectively jumping from high school to the nba and yeah. so that's good. Well to be- maybe
2: he didn't have much time to learn any bad habits in college though. <laughs> Yeah, that could be true. and and Maybe I mean, That's a saving grace.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so he's going to have to, a lot of the stuff in terms of communication and reading and reacting and all that. And so, yeah, there could be some some bad habits that he avoided, but it's going to be a big jump. And defensively, it's going to take time, you know, like to get to, to do the things that he doesn't do right now, but a good NBA defender does. The, it's going to take hard work mentally, physically to get there. But he has the building blocks that if, he, if he's willing to do that, that he can get there and that's a really important step for centers and you and I talk all the time like I mean centers even though there's some wonderful offensive ones right now the most important thing they can do is defend because if you don't have a good defensive center it's really hard to make it work a
2: couple other things to add uh, for him defensively the defensive rebounding uh, Schmidt said that his effort there was inconsistent I thought his defensive rebounding was very good in the Oregon game I thought he was pursuing even taking away rebounds from the guys on his team which I think is a good thing I mean he wasn't trying to hog it a lot of times you just you see the the ball you go after it and another one of your teammates just happens to be there as a defensive rebounder you're not necessarily looking around you to see how many of your teammates are there uh i thought he did a decent job boxing out he's gonna have good tools for that so i i, th- I thought he could be a very solid defense route i thought overall actually his rebounding was probably the part of the of his game that i liked the most just yeah. based on again mostly that oregon game
1: the only the only beef i had with his rebounding is he like a few like a lot of young bigs but like a few who are even in the league he him being too jumpy on blocks can sometimes hurt his defensive rebounding like he'll go yeah. for a play and then he just won't be in the right spot mitchell robinson runs into this sometimes too a lot a lot of guys do but i think he'll get better at that and just realize the shots he can get to and the shots he can't but it's gonna that that is like the weakest point in his rebounding game but As you said, it's strong.
2: All right, we'll take a quick break here and then we're going to talk about his offense uh, and wrap up with our thought of whether he could be worth a top five pick or not. Offensively, mixed bag, I would say. I, I, I think... I like his upside defensively much more than offensively. We'll talk a little bit about exactly what that is when we get to our final thoughts. But I don't think that he's going to be a guy that you're going to run offense through in the NBA. Would you agree with that?
1: Wholeheartedly, I think that we you know we haven't seen much of his like handoff game or some of the stuff that like Bam Adebayo does. But if you think about the other ways that Biggs can get usage, they can shoot threes, they can have a post up game, they can you know offensive rebound. I think offensive rebound he can obviously do, But it, the, there were like, I didn't love his feel close to the basket. You know, obviously, if you can dunk it, that's not a problem. But yeah. he also, like, this was a criticism I had of Ayton going back to when he was at Hillcrest. That I thought Aiton was too comfortable shooting jump shots, and Wiseman he it's it's kind of like that was his instinct. Certain circumstances, he had this really awkward turnaround shot that he threw a couple times. it's just like why, like, why would you decide to try to do that? And the worst one of those, the single worst piece of film that I saw in Wiseman from his three games in college, was this play towards the end of the Oregon game. I saw it in the compressed footage. And oh I yeah, I know what the, you're
2: talking about. It was like a minute 17 left. They're yes. down by seven. Down by seven. He jacks up a step back. Jumper and gets blocked by. Oh no! Eden there was a,
1: there was a worse one than that. So he was oh, right. Really? Yeah, well, so he he it was yeah. I think we might be thinking of the same play. It wasn't a block. It was a travel. He went up for the shot.
2: Oh yeah. And then yeah. realized
1: like I'm not going to get it off. And then traveled just like.
2: Well, Pr- Pritchard got a handout. I mean, yeah. in the NBA, it would have been called a jump ball.
1: Yeah, I but, guess that's true. But it was it was yeah. just te- like the process was terrible. The execution was terrible. All of it was was really bad. And it's like oh god. But the what yeah. the the positive with his offense is. Well, well, let me talk about that that whole jump shot thing a little sure. bit more
2: b- before you, we, we change the subject. Definitely some tunnel vision. Yes. And he wasn't, especially in that Oregon game, they're playing zone, they're switching, they're fronting. He did not get a ton of touches. But when he did, I mean, there's still a thought. They always drill into big man says, all right, you got to be aggressive. And be aggressive to me means it doesn't necessarily have to mean you shoot the ball every time you touch it. And when he got it in the mid-range he was trying to attack off the dribble which he did a little bit at the high school level but that's high school i didn't I, I thought his forays against better competition did not look particularly good i don't think he's gonna be you know a face the basket cross guys up kind of guy there's not a, lot of, not a lot of bigs who do that frankly uh now you know if we're talking about hey they double team the pick and roll he catches it at the three-point line on the move can he do a, a euro step uh, or uh, make a move yeah i think so i but his passing feel i thought was very limited when he did get it in the post he was so excited that he got in the post he would just go into his move there was one play where they entered the ball to him he's basically like facing a guy wide open in front of him for a corner three and he just goes into his move and does like a tough fadeaway, which i think he actually made but yeah it's a lot of the left hand this got this looping left-handed shot that he kind of releases from behind his head which makes it difficult to block but he loves, like, taking a step back to his right, which, I mean, that's just not going to be a good shot for him in most situations uh, from two Um it really likes the turn and face we didn't really see any of catching the ball 15 feet away from the basket and backing down and either drawing help and making a play or just putting his guy in the goal you know the, that level of physicality was missing he was a little more physical tra- and that I guess that I'll talk more about the the rest of that but his mid-range jumper is like solid and I think you know he shows good mobility like the footwork on that step back it's not what you want but I mean, the fact that he can do it, I guess, means something good uh, that he might be able to learn some other moves too, but do you think danny with that jump shot you know certainly i I think he's uh, not taking great shots these long twos that's not what he should be making a living on it's gonna have to get rid of that but uh do you think that he can stretch his jump shot out to nba3
1: i think it's possible but not probable i mean the the form isn't terrible i mean i could imagine him being a a more you know pop three-point shooter not a you know and that's really all you would ever ask for you are not gonna he's not gonna be like initiating and then just do a pull-up i mean you're not gonna that's not gonna be anything so i don't think he's 18 it's entirely possible that he gets there but it's not I remember you know going to the hoop summit for years like you and I have done um when I I, so I wasn't at the hoop summit that Wiseman was at but when I when I watched him you know I watched that jump shot I wasn't it didn't look as projectable to me as some other guys who haven't been able to make that jump so I'm not going to say it's yeah, like... Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I would certainly put him below the level of where, say, a Miles Turner, where he was right. at at this point in time. Now, I mean, I, I'd give him a decent shot at being able to hit some standstill threes at 34, 35%, something like that. Now, are you talking, you know, to be sort of like what Dwayne Dedman was two years ago? Like I think that that's kind fair. of player? Yeah, that's totally possible. Uh, yeah. So, but I think he'll like, be better as, a role,
1: better as a role man than a pop guy, though.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's right. So, and I mean, he looks relatively comfortable at the free throw line i mean the numbers uh on that just not really sizable enough uh, to know even the the limited aau numbers uh, that i have in front of me are were about 60 percent, but that, that wasn't a ton uh of games it was only 10 games um i think his physicality was okay like posting up deep in the lane getting lobs uh, trying to get position you know i thought that was all right um I did I am a little worried about his hands though. I don't think his hands are amazing. I mean, they they turn the ball over so many times trying to lob it into him. And there's plays where you're like, oh, maybe he can catch this against these smaller guys. And sometimes the passes yeah, he, admittedly weren't great. He but.
1: missed an alley oop dunk and I was just like, What happened? Like I could I couldn't figure out I couldn't figure out it seemed like it was within his catch radius. And a, just- as
2: someone who like got thrown a lot of alley oops that uh were outside of my catch radius and were were bad passes and people just assumed that I was gonna go get him. I, I will defend him on that a lot of you you short dudes always think that like an alley-oop is like super easy but uh it, it can be a little more difficult fine um
1: uh, I'll say I'll say that the uh, <laughs> but but
2: but yeah no I mean I know the player you're talking about it yeah. in my, that my, case you're, you're right
1: my, my favorite my, my favorite play that Wiseman had offensively was one so he grabbed the offensive rebound I think this was in the I think it was in the NIU game um and he he grabbed the offensive rebound passed it out then worked his way back into position for uh as the guard dribbled and got a lob and it's like okay you know that's you did a couple different things in the same play and he got got worked his way back in and I mean because he's bigger and stronger than everybody else he was able to make something happen it's like okay you can know that that's that's something good to do um for for a big and i think being low usage for a center I think it's some way, you know, I, obviously you'd love to have somebody who's scalable and, you know, the, the the idea behind those truly elite offensive centers, even though some of them get caught doing a little bit too much. That's been one of my criticisms of Embiid at times. But there is, if, if he could be really, really good defensively, having somebody who only does a couple of things and eventually works hard enough to do those things pretty well, you know, that's not a problem. There are they're, they're successful bigs in the league that have followed that general template. A few other notes uh, on him. I mean, he's got like a
2: little bit of a jump hook. Look turnaround jumper in addition to those face up inside pivots and step backs it, you know looked okay but I it's you know I don't think he's gonna be a LaMarcus Aldridge style turnaround jump shooter you know I, I don't think he's gonna have that level of touch so that's probably not gonna be something that's gonna work for me there's a possibility that it, that it could but I, I'm you're not wowed by him as a shooter he's more of a developing shooter but you never know I mean there have been players who have developed it in that vein but I, I more likely than not that he doesn't his finishing around the rim when it's not a dunk is not unbelievable he's very left-handed he will do some stuff with the right every once in a while but it's more off of one foot when he's kind of more open when he really needs it when he's trying to power up around the basket he won't really go up with the right hand at all you know with like that very short range right-handed hook floater off the glass you know from inside the lane you know he doesn't really seem to have that shot Mm -hmm. um and and at the hoops on it i i think he was getting bumped off of his shots when he's trying to power up inside off of rebounds or catching pass when he couldn't go straight up for a dunk. I I think since he's gotten stronger, we didn't see that as much in the limited film, but he was was playing against some patsies as well, a a lot of the way. Uh, And and then again, his hands, I think, are average i think he's not like a great hands guy he's not gonna on the roll you know you throw it behind him he's not gonna catch it and lay it in he's not gonna have those sticky hands if you throw him a kind of a contested pass when he's fronted um and i think he overall there's he's fluid for his size in terms of his movement but i don't think he's smooth in just like from a basketball skill standpoint to where he's putting multiple moves together when he's catching on the move, he's prone to a travel every once in a while, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that.
2: I was very impressed with his offensive rebounding. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was trying to rebound out of his area that he crashed the glass. He got some tip dunks. So I had a pretty good nose to the offensive glass. I mean, we're not talking Andre Drummond level here, but I think he'll have a, above a 10% offensive rebound rate would be my guess.
1: Yeah, and especially if he can go after the glass, this is where the motor does matter if you can get on the glass and not sabotage your team's transition defense then coaches are a lot more comfortable letting you actually do that even though offensive rebounding is being de-emphasized in the modern nba
2: yeah and then transition running the floor i think he can be an asset At times, if he is uh, on the break, he can move pretty quickly. I mean, he's not just sprinting and beating his man down the floor, but he can get involved there.
1: And he he had a really nice uh, lefty dunk on a situation where he did straight up just beat his man down the floor. And like those sorts of plays will be with NBA spacing and passing could be awesome.
2: His passing, I mentioned, was left something to be desired. There's a few instances from the, like the McDonald's All America game practice where he was able to throw a lob into the post, but what's really missing is the ability to go from scoring mode to passing mode. I think if he's just kind of handling it outside and he's in passing mode, then maybe he can make you know some decent reads. You know, and we'll see. We haven't we didn't see much of him in the DHO game. That wasn't what Memphis largely was trying to do. Okay, another quick break here, and then we will finish up with our overall assessment of James Wiseman. So I could see Wiseman as an above-average offensive center if it breaks right for him. Would you say that's that's how you would see it?
1: It's possible. I mean, I don't think he can reach the elite level, but above-average, it's possible.
2: How would you compare him offensively to DeAndre Ayton?
1: I liked Ayton's tools a lot more. I thought he had way better touch, way better feel. Um, I liked his jump shot mechanics more, um, and Ayton played with more assertiveness to me. Other than the the offensive boards, maybe that was a little bit different. I liked Ayton's building blocks a lot more offensively. I do
2: think Wiseman will get to the line more than Ayton. I yeah, mean, there's that's not many who get, yeah, there's not many <laughs> who get to the line less than Ayton at this point in time. But we haven't seen any ability from Wiseman, and maybe you know he's got the physical tools maybe he can get to this but we've never really seen him just catch the ball and be able to back down into position and just really use his size to overwhelm people in the post like that's just not something that has existed for him i mean that i'm not saying that can't happen but it is not even something that's begun to happen at all for him and that's not the end of the world i I think he's capable of making a play off a dribble or two in a straight line and maybe even making like a euro step finish if it's kind of a set piece sort of play i think he can be effective on short rolls he's gonna have to learn how to make the reads passing the ball out of that stuff but you know i I think he could be a solid offensive center now there's a lot of those out there right like there's that doesn't that doesn't mean top five pick so my question to you is does he have the upside defensively to really think of and when we say top five pick you know we're, we're not comparing him to other players in this draft we haven't looked at them yet just to what you would normally think of as a top five pick and also when you consider just what the center position is today do you see him as having that level of upside defensively
1: i think there's a chance i mean he's 18 and he has that the, the physical frame to make a lot of those things happen but when we look at the best of the best, I don't, you know, like, I'm not as confident in it. I think it is a distinct possibility. But where, where I was kind of going with the center position was something I was thinking about really even before I started watching his film, and then even more as I did, was thinking about more like the 85th percentile outcome. So like a really positive, but not the like crazy, crazy best scenario. And to me, that's him ending up as one of the like those like, clear, like very good centers. So not like the top... The top group, like we talked about, um, Embiid and Jokic, those guys are really special talents. But maybe being kind of more like where Miles Turner and some of those guys are, that's not a bad place to be, obviously. But if we're talking about that as more in the reasonable best-case Area, then everything below that becomes more run in run in the middle. I think he can
2: be better offensively than Miles Turner, but he he may not have the shooting ability.
1: Yeah, it'd be be a different kind of offense, but and and especially being an offensive rebounder, I I do think that there are teams that could use that well. I I think I like as remember because Turner's not fully formed yet either. Like I think that Turner Turner can grow. I like I like where he is. But yeah, if we're gonna talk about it as a conceptual thing and then defensively, he has really good tools. Um so yeah, I I thought about, you know, thought about like well how much value does Turner have? Clint Capella, um, yeah, you brought up Deadman. You know, like there are a lot of different players and I was thinking about so – so at first that made me a little bit down because it's like, you know, those guys are gettable, you know. And, or Jared Allen, for example, another another guy who I really liked as a as a, pro, as a college prospect, the little bit of film I did get to see on him at SC. And Wiseman was more touted and all that stuff and, and, and doing that. But so it's like, okay, well, so you have that type of player. But then the other part of it is I don't think he has like the sky-high upside. But having a player yeah. on a rookie scale contract – and then having match rights on them after that, that's a pretty... You know, like it, it's it's not the worst thing in the world to have somebody who's a solid starting center at that kind of a framework. So...
2: Yeah, and also those kind of players usually start to produce within the first couple of years right i mean in some because case, in some it's cases, so much about the physical tools
1: right i mean it is a it can be a little bit slower for the defensive guys versus the offensive ones or uh, like well, yeah. I mean,
2: maybe he'll be starting but not finishing games within right. his first couple of years
1: right and so but but like in an abstract like in the abstract film so what are the guys that i compared him to you brought up ayton i i think i would probably have wiseman below ayton because even though I think defense is more important than offense, what I saw with Aiton was somebody who had a lot of really intriguing things, and then you kind of just wondered if he was going to piece it together. And I just liked I liked Aiton's building blocks a little bit more, and it's not like Wiseman has this unbelievable rep of, oh, he's a grinder, he's he's going to be a double. If he had that, if I had heard that about Wiseman, I would have him over Aiden. But when the motor kind of questions and all those things are more similar, then that toned down. Now, Aiton, I had him higher than you did, I had and and that was a draft class that was that was divisive in its own ways. But you know, like it, we don't know where this class is going to turn out. So I could see using it to a top five pick on him in the abstract, and then we'll see where it goes in this class.
2: Yeah, I think ayton was you know fourth or fifth something something like that on my board. In I think I had him third. Um, so here are the when we did our center rankings. I don't see him getting into like the top six, right? I think he could get there. You know, I think he could be, you know, similar in level, if not in type to a Bam out uh, because I just, I don't see the, the absolute crazy standout skill offensively, but so Brooke Lopez, Miles Turner, LaMarcus Aldridge, DeMontis, Sabonis, Al Horford, Sergi Baca. Those are my seven through 12. I could see him when fully formed being in that range. I would expect him to be around that area i would say um maybe maybe expected would be a little bit below that you know something like the 15th best center in the league and that's that's when you start getting into this point of like okay do you really want to pay for this guy in terms of draft picks or in terms of a, a large contract eventually um i actually like him better than eight i would think because i think he's just defensively as a help defender he, he's much better than aiden and he also doesn't have this weird aversion to getting fouled he also doesn't have this weird thing about like oh he really wants to play the four you yeah know, he, that's he, fair he acknowledges that that he's a setter. and you know Aiden we saw him average 20 and 10 over a college season but we also saw his many flaws we didn't get that chance with Wiseman so there is more uncertainty you never know he could have played this college season and it not really looked that good over the course of it and, and you know he's playing with four other freshmen and they didn't really pass him the ball that much it, it was precious to chew is kind of being used as another big so I, I feel okay about him you know i would think of him as more you know i like him more than say a mo bamba who went sixth in twenty
1: eighteen. Yeah, I, I do too. Also, like, um, I mean, with Bomba, yeah. remember how skinny he was. We like I kinda like wondered if he was gonna stick at the position. Yeah. I don't have those concerns with Wiseman.
2: Yeah, and maybe maybe what happens is he just gets to be so physically overwhelming and he develops that toughness where you can get in the ball in the post and he can just back down and just put people in the basket. You know, maybe he just gets to be that level of strength.
1: Or maybe he's like a regular season offensive option where against the those against that bottom ten center in the starting in the starting caliber he just beasts on those guys enough and then in the playoffs he's less useful but you just play him less yeah
2: now he just he's not a natural basketball player i think that that is is clear to me and maybe that means that he can develop more as he's playing the game but more likely it seems to me like he's gonna kind of have to be taught stuff and he won't be a natural when it comes to passing and making reads and catching the ball and just having an idea of where the defense is and whether he should go up for the shot or take a dribble in and dunk it he just he's he looks a little bit like he's processing things a beat too slow out there sometimes but uh, i do really like the physical tools a lot in another era you'd say he probably should go number one but just you wonder about him as a center but I, I wouldn't. I haven't seen any of these other guys yet. I've heard about them. I wouldn't rule him out for the number one I pick either. right now. Yeah, no, I. I, I that's kind of how I'm feeling about it. Yep. Um, I mean, he would be a below average number one pick compared to the others that, that we've seen. But I wouldn't rule him out, uh, especially because a lot of these guys are point guards. Teams might have point guards, and, and you know, I do think that he is a relatively high floor prospect with those physical tools. You just don't see that all the time, and he plays hard enough. That I don't think he's just going to be a total bust.
1: Yeah, I, I I think it's unlikely, and also I mean if you play him twenty minutes a game, whether that's starting or coming off the bench, I think he can help you, and the, and that sent the. The patchwork quilt idea. You're talking about early on, yes, early on. The idea of a patchwork quilt center rotation. You know, you have different guys who have different strengths and all that. Like, I think he could be a part of that in the early going, and then hopefully he gets good enough where he becomes most of the quilt, and then you use other guys around.
2: Yeah, but as I said, I really would have. It's possible that he could become an all star if he fully reaches his potential on defense, but I don't see him being an all star level offense.
1: Well, and the more the bigger like you talked about all star, like I think all nba is going to be a lot harder for him like to get even sure. for like for a single season me i think it's more likely that he gets in the defensive player of the year conversation than the all nba conversation partially just because i mean the offensive part yeah. of the element
2: well once once you're defensive player of the year then you probably should get talked about yeah the at least a little bit
1: but i think to me he's like it's possible for him to get defensive player of the year like uh, he's not at the, quite at that level where it's like i think it's yeah. a like a more significant chance like there are a few guys who've come in and was one of those for me other than the health issues and Anthony Davis was on those. I would say to an extent, like, I was wrong that I thought Willie Cauley-Stein had that upside. But Wiseman, like, he's, he's, you know, a step below those guys, but not two steps below, which a lot of guys are.
2: Yeah, he might be two steps below for me. But he has the physical tools to maybe get there. And, you know, he at least blocks some shots. He at least makes some plays. So, all right, we're, we're probably going in circles here. We can wrap up those forty minutes on him, actually. Um, Almost as long got, as he played. Yeah. Um. You had anything to talk about before we bring in Ben here?
1: Yeah. I. Um. If you haven't listened to the podcast I did with Ethan Sherwood Strauss, take a listen to that. That's on Real Jam Radio. And also, I have a new piece coming out at the Athletic. It should be out on Monday. Might be Tuesday. Previewing the twenty twenty free agent point guards. I wrote a piece on the big men last week. I did the point guards this week. We'll do the wings soon as well. And going through kind of the structure. I'm for all for all the position classes I'm doing max players cap space above but below the above the mid level but below the mid level guys and minimum guys and so for me it's a way of thinking about supply and demand and and where things might go and it was you know thinking that I, I wrote a big section on Fred Van Vliet and like where that negotiation could go and i like doing that th- those elements of the process you know going into whatever it is for the off-season prep whether it's team by team or a mock-off season or something like that and i like doing it position by position because that's how i do my prep
2: one other thing too here before you bring in Ben if you have ideas for a show that you would like to hear feel free to tweet it to us i think what we'll do is we'll ask ben to put those together for us ben dull and our director of basketball research and we'll i'll do a twitter poll tournament <laughs> of those ideas and we'll s- select some of the winners to do over these next uh, few weeks or so here so uh, all right we'll bring in ben right now ben taylor that is Here's a quick note before we bring in Ben. This was recorded just before it came out that President Trump recommended extending the social distancing guidelines until April 30th, which in my opinion is a needed and welcome step. So I don't think anything that we talked about is obviated by that news. But if you're wondering why we didn't discuss that at all, it's because we recorded just before that news came down. All right, this is our third daily briefing now on the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Ben Taylor joining me, we'll hear from him in a second. I just want to tell you what this is supposed to be basically is a roundup of the stuff that you need to know of what's going on in the world. Try to keep it to 25, 35 minutes or so. And the idea is you listen to this and hopefully that can enable you to stop obsessing about the news the rest of the day. Do the other things in your life that you need to do. We're just trying to curate this uh, the best we can. And obviously we are not scientists, but we are skilled aggregators and we are doing our absolute best to adhere to decent journalistic standards here. Hey, speak for yourself. I'm, I'm social <laughs> scientist. <laughs> um, so one thing that I might note too, is if you want to support this program, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. I'm actually paying Ben to be on here. I'm guessing we're probably not going to get more money from sponsors. So any additional donations there would be appreciated. Yeah, but that's, again, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah.
0: Um, and just as someone who myself relies a decent amount on Patreon subscribers, uh, just being able to support us and Nate here um, is, is really huge. So any, any help is really appreciated.
2: Yeah. But of course, we understand given this crisis, you're not in an economic position to do that. I, I wanted to do this. It's worth it to me to do it and bring Ben on because he, he's doing a great job here. Before we get started, I owe you guys a mea culpa because I didn't quite accurately convey the content of that study from Stanford talking about heating the N95 mask in an oven for 158 degrees for 30 minutes to decontaminate it. I conflated that with reports that doctors were doing that in their homes. The study actually says a recommendation to not do that in your home. So I didn't quite relay that accurately. I I apologize. We're not going to be a thousand percent perfect on this, but we're hoping to do better than a lot of people. And when we do discover errors, uh, as a listener was kind enough to point out to me, and if you guys see anything else that you think we're getting wrong, please let us know. Our goal is to be as close to accurate as we can here. So let's get started now. And I've been thinking about a lot of people. Who, whether publicly, people that I know, it seems like we are at this point now where everybody is looking at this through the lens of just wanting to be able to reopen things as quickly as possible. And so we'll we'll talk about a study that's being, I think, misinterpreted in that vein through those, I guess you could say rose-colored glasses. But it's kind of reminding me, Ben, of that as a society right now, we're like an NBA team at the beginning of a rebuild. You know, are, yeah.
0: You know, I I, I saw that. Um, we have a few show notes to, to prep right before we record. Yeah,
2: just just a few,
0: <laughs> just a few, <laughs> you know, just a couple pages. Um, but we basically, you know, try to try to share these in a single space. And when Nate shared that this morning, it was really. really resonated with me, obviously, the basketball, and we do basketball all the time, but that concept of when you're in a rebuild, you really want to kind of go as fast as possible in a way. But if you get your mindset in a space where you understand, okay, there's a process, right? That was the the whole concept of the hashtag process is like, we are waiting and planning and putting in stuff now, so it'll pay off later. And, And I really like that idea that you're bringing up here as like a... As an easy way to shift your mental space, especially as a basketball fan, to say, look, this is not something that we're going to turn around and win 65 games in a title next year. Uh, there's a there's a sp- there's a process and there's a little time that it takes to get to where we need to go.
2: And the other reason that uh, that analogy really stuck out to me is because it's so easy to short-circuit your rebuilding process. People are in pain right now, right? We we are losing a lot of games this year. Uh, With everything closed down, the economy is in big trouble. People are really hurting economically. And so that's uh, everyone really... uh, The fans are complaining, right? They they want this to be over fast. They want signs of progress. But the problem is we can't just trade for a 33 year old off injured power forward who makes $25 million a year so that we can win 31 games next year and say that we're making progress. We, we have to go through the process of really making sure that this virus is under control before you reopen things. Because if you reopen things, yeah, you might get a temporary boost. All right, people are happier. You're going back to work, blah, blah. But then the virus is just going to reemerge when we don't have it under control in terms of both testing capacity and the number of actual infections. So we are so far away from getting back to being a perennial playoff team right now we really just have to acknowledge that that it's going to take continued amounts of pain to really get this thing under control And you have to really say hey we've got enough good players on our team young players that this is going to be sustainable if we go for the quick fix we're just going to be we'll get a little bit of a boost and then we'll be right back where we started again and it'll be a bunch of seasons that we'll have wasted so that 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 analogy just kind of stuck out to me a little bit as we got started and so in that vein let's start with this study from oxford which got headlines i think bad headlines of saying that in the uk this model indicating that at least the headline said that more than 50 percent of the population in the uk could have already been infected and were just asymptomatic and that were the implication being hey we're really close to already getting herd immunity and being able to open things back up but that's really not what the study said ever. right
0: right yeah the head the headline in that sense was very misleading um in saying you know study suggests that we may already have 50 percent infected and therefore we're close to to herd immunity um what the study was really trying to do it, it was You know, following these sort of um, standard or basic uh, infectious disease model procedures and saying, hey, if we look at some parameters, namely, we want to say like, all right, do we know from the data we have that we have a lot of infections out there, but they're low severity? So many, many, many people are infected, but we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Or is it the opposite? Do we have very low number of infections and we're seeing all of them and their high severity, you know, all these people going to the ER um, and then having fatal cases, of course. And so they're looking at a huge wide range uh, of, you know, all of these possibilities. They're still using a very simply uh, simple modeling paradigm and i think if you were and i've seen many experts um who have actually reviewed this online where you can go as a as a health expert and review other papers this wasn't a peer-reviewed paper i think experts are saying like if you look at their data all they're saying is hey if i don't really know a lot of stuff it's possible that anywhere between like 0.5 0.5 and 60% of the United Kingdom are already infected. And of course, I think we can use a little bit more real world data. that a lot of experts have uh, chimed in on and to say, mm, it's probably unlikely or extremely unlikely that that really high number that you saw in the headlines is anywhere close to where we're at. And thus the the misrepresentation of the study.
2: The authors themselves state that, quote, our overall approach rests on the assumption, my emphasis, that only a very small proportion of the population is at risk for hospital hospitalizable illness. It's a mouthful. So it is a British study, after all. <laughs> uh, and there's really – and so – as little as zero point one percent of the population who gets this thing—that's their assumption—and so that's where it would have to be that only zero point one percent of people who get this have to be hospitalized. That might indicate that as much as fifty percent, maybe right. even a little bit more of the population has it. But there's—I mean—the data, everything that I've seen, I think everything that anybody has seen indicates the hospitalization rate is much, much, much higher than that. I mean, when you, when you've seen 20% of cases as quote unquote severe around that number, maybe need to be hospitalized. Certainly if you have more young people, that number could go down a little bit, but it's not going to go down to 0.1%. I mean, there's really, that's just, okay. What if they're saying, ah, what if it were just 0.1%, right? That's basically what they're saying. Here's what it would look like. There's nothing other than that, than them just being like, oh, what would it be if it's this?
0: Yeah. And and my understanding is that is a fairly common place to start in infectious disease models when they're simple and naive. But in this case, it's it's not the headline. The headline isn't that 50% of the UK is probably or even possibly infected. It's more like that's extremely unlikely based on what we know.
2: Yeah. And this model also assumes if you're going to get to that 50% that all these asymptomatic people are still infecting people at the same rate as symptomatic people. And that it's just totally random who you might bump into. It doesn't really account for clustering. It it looks at both the UK and Italy and kind of assumes that those are just two populations that are mixing together, which is not necessarily the case. So a, a lot of issues with that, but it's really, I mean, the study is worth doing. It's just the fact that, It was reported on, I mean, the headline in the Financial Times is coronavirus may have infected half of UK population, Oxford study. That's the headline. Yeah. I think that's an irresponsible headline. I agree. um, And now what this, I think, was really trying to accomplish is show that we need serological testing which basically is looking at people random people in the population to determine whether in fact they have already recovered from the disease and that's certainly a very worthy goal and needs to be done so we can figure out who has been out there and has had this and has recovered or people who who just aren't being tested because they're not symptomatic like that's a very worthy goal but there's very very little indication that the hospitalization rate is 0.1% 0.1% from this disease. If it were, uh, I don't think anyone would have been <laughs> this worried about it. Right. Well, if, if
0: it were, we're about to, everything will just stop in theory. Um, and so I think there are a lot of real world indicators that suggest that is sort of, even as a realm of reasonable possibility, that ship has left the station. Remember, when you do a paper like this, and this one isn't peer reviewed yet, it's just up for what they call preprint, um, you know, it takes some time to do your research pump the paper out, publish it. And so when we're in the middle, we say this, I feel like every episode, when we're in the middle of the thing unfolding in real time, um, not only do things change very rapidly, not only do we learn new stuff rapidly, which is what we're hopefully trying to communicate successfully out to you all. Um, but the, the information that you have is also dirty. It's, it's uh, you know, fuzzy. You're not going to have precise figures coming out of everywhere. Uh, and so many people on the ground are doing incredible work to get numbers out and keep track of these things. But even the numbers you see uh, are going to no longer, you know, they're not really going to be quote unquote official until you can do stuff like take serological uh, t- data at the end of it to to add to you know these these more official counts.
2: So let's talk about one of the other issues uh, that's been in the news uh, a lot. Lately, and that is the idea of mass. Now, a lot of this is theoretical because, uh, hey, guess what? We don't really have many of those yeah. right now. <laughs> and, and obviously, healthcare workers who are coming in contact with so many coronavirus patients, it needs to be prioritized for them. But what is the recent data saying about whether mass in the general population can be helpful in preventing transmission of the disease?
0: So there's a lot of evidence, apparently, that masks are effective, even if they're not foolproof. And before I get to that, I think the issue here is worth sort of unpacking briefly in terms of the headlines and the controversy. So uh, from from my vantage point, uh, something like maybe a month ago um, kind of started this where uh, the Surgeon General and a lot of other health authorities were saying things like there's a tweet that's put out um, saying stop buying masks they're not effective in preventing general public from catching coronavirus but if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients it puts them and our communities at risk now nate i don't know about you but i think a lot of people interpreted that as saying masks are ineffective full stop i
2: mean it seems to me like it's just this is ultimately paternalism right in two ways I mean, one is and maybe we need needed that paternalism and we still need it because we still don't have enough masks and people are finding these caches of masks all the time and donating them i think hopefully we're kind of getting that as a society we we've moved beyond the mask hoarding stage of things now but paternalism in the sense that number one they don't want people hoarding them for themselves they want them to go to healthcare workers so if you say that they're not that effective, that's one way to do that. I never particularly understood why it would help healthcare workers not get infected, but it wouldn't help the general population, well, at least some.
0: Well, right, and I think that's the issue here. I think the the good faith reading of this message is that they're saying, quite factually, if the public were to take the masks as resources, that would still not prevent spread. There aren't enough masks. Um, there aren't enough high-quality masks. Uh, yeah. The average citizen doesn't know how to wear a mask properly, etc., etc., etc.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think that's a big part of it too. It's just right. the, the the second part of the paternalism is all oh, people are gonna be like, oh, I got a mask, I can just go live my normal life and do whatever the hell I want now. Right. I think that, so, that's the second part of it that they're worried about.
0: Right. And so this message was uh, dictated early on, um, and I think it's created a lot of confusion and I think it's has sown a little bit of distrust which is unfortunate because I think a good faith reading uh, and as you're saying some level of paternalism is consistent with the difficulty in messaging in uh, the you know the outbreak of a pandemic like this with all of this said, I think there is a push to say, hey, if we can, as a society, we should start wearing masks. For instance, um, the Chinese CDC director, George Gao, says not wearing masks is a big mistake. It's very commonplace in these Asian countries to wear masks. Uh, another guy, Public Health uh, University of Birmingham in UK, uh, KK Cheng, he says, look, when you talk about the transmission here, people speaking, breathing, singing, anything, you don't have to sneeze or cough you will have droplet transmission coming out. And that is a way where you can have person to person infection and masks, even if they're not perfect, do help to some degree.
2: But I, I like this guy, this guy, K.K. Chang, anything that prevents people from, uh, from singing in public, I, I'm <laughs> all for.
0: Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure like, maybe that's a very Birmingham, uh, UK thing to sing a lot in public <laughs> near your friend. Uh, but that is, that is part of the quote. And, uh, you know, the idea here is that we still want to prioritize for healthcare workers. Healthcare workers, we'll talk about this more a little bit as we go through the news in some of these places, but they are already rationing supplies. They are limited on supplies and these things do help. N95 respirators help more and just these basic surgical masks help, but they're not foolproof, but they do help a little bit. How much? Um, Let's quickly reference just some of the studies. There's a 2012 study that looks at the effectiveness of mass. By the way, many of you have asked about um, the sources that we present. We will try, we're, this is all still happening very fast for us, we'll try to figure out a way to get some of these sources out, even if it's just me tweeting them afterwards. But this particular study uh, looked at a number of different ways and distances to spray droplets into masks. And they looked at not only N95 respirators, but they looked at things like surgical masks or just standard face masks. And they did find, especially depending on how you're wearing it or what the conditions are, you can have really good protection. So Nate, to your point, it is a good idea and that's why healthcare workers want them but we're kind of in this murky situation in this country where we're it's almost like we're telling people not to use them maybe out of paternalism or whatever but they do work but we don't want the we don't want the public hoarding them because that that will actually be really bad in the long run because if you take out your healthcare workers um, then you've got a bigger problem so they do work and we should push toward them I think I'm personally going to even try to just they're saying even just tying a scarf around your face or any anything that doesn't have like huge holes that you didn't knit at home with giant holes in it and the idea is to protect your own droplets from your mouth when you, well, I'm not going to sing, but you know, when you uh, talk or uh, speak in public or anything like that. And so we're all protecting each other. It's it's less even about yourself and more about protecting your neighbor, your your brother, your sister, whatever.
2: Yeah. And I think when people say, oh, it's effective. No, it's not 100% effective, right. especially when you're talking about just surgical masks. But I mean, even if it reduces transmission by 20%, that's something, right? When you're looking at an entire society. Um, so I, I do think at some point, especially if we're going to be reopening things, we need to actually train the population on how to use masks and get as many masks out as we can. I, I certainly uh, would appreciate having one. Right. Um- And whether it's for my own protection or more likely for spreading anything that I may have. Um, Anything else on that in terms of just, yeah.
0: Yeah. One more thing that I think is worth sort of bringing up in this discussion of masks, a great episode on a podcast called Epidemic with Dr. Celine Gounder really dives into this if you want to hear the, the researchers who do this. But the idea I've seen related to mask use and it doesn't help and things like that is that some of these headlines also say, well... COVID-19 isn't airborne, and that's kind of like a technicality. There's this weird false dichotomy that exists where, uh, you know, quote-unquote droplets are technically in a lot of places over five microns. It's like a lot of us are really used to, you know, dealing with things that are five microns in our, in our daily lives, unless we're engineers. Um, and then if it's smaller, it's an aerosol. And so that would get the headline of airborne. The, the idea the layperson idea here is that when you sneeze, when you talk, when you cough, when you sing, uh, and you have particles coming out of your mouth, when you're speaking to someone and you're close to them and you have particles and saliva coming out of your mouth, uh, that is how this is transmitted. That's something we know other coronaviruses exhibit this behavior and whether it lingers in the air for hours and hours, like uh, what was the, the movie with Dustin Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman in the 90s if anyone's seen that. you know, Whether it does that, it doesn't seem to do that, but that's less of a technicality or more of a technicality here. And the larger idea is that, yeah, there is this kind of transmission that's coming in the air out of people's mouths and masks help.
2: All right, let's get to just our news roundup here. USA is now number one in coronavirus cases. And by the way, I'm going to have to tell you this, obviously. I mean, you you read the news, you know, like there's not going to be much that's particularly encouraging right now, but we're trying to tell you what's going on here. This is not necessarily a podcast that's trying to make you feel better if there's good news to share we'll definitely share it but i mean this is trying to be as realistic as possible and it's really ugly out there right now so uh 538 is doing what i think is a solid endeavor they are taking a survey of experts to try to determine what the ranges are of the severity of this so this survey of experts they have on average foreseen two hundred forty six thousand deaths in the united states They also have found that hospitalizations aren't going to peak for weeks or months. The consensus of that is made. That's in accord with the study we talked about on Friday from University of Washington, which, again, I thought of as a best-case scenario. Uh, And the consensus estimate ranges in terms of deaths between 36,000 and
0: 1.1
2: million and yeah, that and so, is, and, so that is and so just really to ugly. be,
0: just to be clear here, this is sort of an idea of like the wisdom of the crowds, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're getting a bunch of epidemiological experts and people on the ground or what have you who are, have insight into this. And then they're kind of pooling their data as a way to be smarter about projecting what's coming, right? Is that the, is that what they're doing?
2: Yeah, that's a, uh, that's essentially it. And it's a good article worth reading on 530. I think they're updating it on a weekly basis here. Um,
0: Does that, does that include, um, does that include the current measures that are in place or does that assume some relaxation of measures going forward? Did they mention that at all?
2: Um, no, I mean, I think it's just each individual expert's assumption of what, what is going to happen in terms of like what level of social distancing is going to occur. Got it. Okay. In China, it's worth noting that no province outside of Hubei, did I say that correctly?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. Bill Bill Bishop would tell me that I pronounced it wrong, I'm guessing. Um, Well,
0: we won't get into the tones, but...
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Scott Gottlieb, who's been an essential follow at Scott Gottlieb MD on Twitter, he was uh, head of the FDA from 2017 to 2019. Uh, He noted that no province outside of Hubei, I I said it differently that time, sorry, uh, (laughs) ever had more than 1,500 confirmed cases. And we now have 15 states with more than 1,500 diagnosed cases. And... New Orleans, Dallas, Miami, Chicago, Detroit, Boston, Philadelphia, and LA all have cases doubling every three to four days. And I mean, I think there's an assumption, at least for me, that in places like that, we haven't succeeded in flattening the curve enough and the healthcare systems are in grave danger of being overwhelmed. And you talked to your buddy in Boston who had some disturbing stories there as well.
0: Yeah, I, I finally was able to get in touch with uh, an ER worker friend of mine who who finished her shit. You know, they go on these long shifts and now she's got a, a few days off. Um, and basically, what she told me is they are already and they haven't really been overwhelmed yet in Boston. They haven't been hit with a huge tsunami or a huge wave. They have a lot of COVID patients showing up. Um, They are treating them. They are trying to put them in different places and isolate them. But one, they're rationing their personal protective equipment. You hear that PPE. So these are already taking place at huge levels. They're given one mask, they're told to wear it all day. Um, I do think there is a way in the hospital that they try to clean it at the end of a shift, but um, there's a limitation on face shields and things like that. And what really struck me, just to kind of put some qualitative texture on this for, for people listening, is when someone comes into the hospital right now, if they present with another reason to come to the hospital, for instance, an automobile accident, they're treated like life is normal. And so what that means is they were, they're sent to a place in the hospital where the staff isn't wearing PPE. And the reason for that is it's already being rationed to the COVID-19 areas only. And so a lot of people are coming in with some other symptom or some other issue. I was in an automobile accident or whatever. And then a day or two later, I you know I have a cough and I'm wheezing. And it turns out they've been COVID positive and they've been in a part of the hospital that in theory should be isolated. But no, it's not isolated. There's no negative pressure rooms. There's a limitation on negative pressure rooms already. And so um, this is in a place where a huge wave hasn't occurred. The takeaway that we just keep hearing from the news and everything else is that they are very short on supplies already. And, you know, we are going to need a huge, huge effort nationally and internationally to continue to support the doctors on the front line when it comes to things like masks, uh, shields, just any kind of personal protective equipment that we can give them uh, moving forward. Yeah. And in New York, uh, Bill de Blasio warned that New York has a one-week
2: supply uh, of medical supplies, other than ventilators, which uh, they're going to have, those are going to run out even sooner.
0: But by the way, I want to add one more, one last thing uh, that she told me. Um, The hospital staff is still being asked to come into work. They can get tested, but the sort of... Asking, uh, standing, standing ask. It's not a standing order. The standing ask is that unless you're really sick, don't come into work. So they're, they just don't have the number of bodies on the ground to take care of people, uh, intubate them, treat them in the way that needs to be treated in the ER if you're going into 14 day quarantine because you sneeze or cough or something. So uh, it, it is, uh, again, I don't think I can stress it enough. Um, it is incredible what these folks are going through on the front line. And when you, hear all of the, you know, you hear like, oh, a million masks might come in. That's actually not that many relative to what we need. So that's going to be a huge thing going forward to track.
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a good touchstone for that is that our National Strategic Reserve N95 masks was supposed to be 95 million masks, and it got depleted in 2009 down to 12 million and was never restored. But that gives you an idea of like our National Reserve was 95 million, how many masks really uh, are needed and, and being able to reuse them and re-sterilize them, maybe that's going to help, uh, but we are way behind. I mean, we need billions of masks.
0: Yeah, Um just to just to hit on a couple other cities domestically you mentioned all these hot spots um New York city is still exhibiting this sort of doubling of deaths every two days in the data. Um, these are, you know, these are really bad signs is this is the kind of thing you want to avoid when you flatten the curve. You want to move from doubling every day or two to every three or four days to a week, just that exponential growth. When you can flatten it out, um, that's when your healthcare system is going to be able to have someone come in and say, Hey, you need a ventilator. You need some kind of treatment that we can help you and save your life. We can still do that. Um, New York City's still that troubling rate of, you know, every every two days or so. And then places like Louisiana, I think I ran some numbers um Right before. Yeah, I did right before we started. So updated through, you know, the morning of the 29th. They they look like they're doubling about every three days, uh, have a lot of growth in New Orleans. So Detroit, Louisiana, New York City, these places, Los Angeles coming online in terms of the same kind of concerns. um, These are the places to keep an eye on right now in terms of like, what's going to happen with this curve? When does it peak? When does it flatten out?
2: Yeah, I'm extremely concerned about New Orleans having lived there for a long time. There are a lot of people there uh, with underlying conditions, and I'm really concerned that the death rate could be a lot higher there because it is uh, not the healthiest population in the world to start with. Um, Let's look around the world now uh, as we finish up here. Vladimir Putin in Russia has declared that all non-essential workplaces have to close from March 28th to April 5th, saying the safest thing is to be at home now. And they also have suspended international travel into and out of Russia. South Africa has ordered most of its 59 million people to stay at home for three weeks uh, starting a couple of days ago. Uh, This is the most restrictive action taken in Africa to contain the spread of coronavirus. And they have more than double the cases. uh, This is as of uh, about a day and a half ago of uh, Egypt, which is the next hardest hit country in Africa. And you'll recall that we talked about the three-week lockdown for India's 1.3 billion people. There are reports there that migrant workers are stuck with no way to get home they're trying to just walk home hundreds of kilometers and uh, interviews with many of them have indicated that they are a lot more worried about dying due to lack of food and water on these journeys than from the coronavirus and i think that is something that we would be well served here to remember that if you want to talk about this idea of well okay we're hurting the economy so much here like we have to open up we can't deal with this no, like what these migrants are going through, that's the point at which you start to wonder, okay, is it worth it or not? Like if people are actually going to start dying because they don't have the economic means as a result of a, of a lockdown, that's when you can start having this cure is worse than the disease discussion. I mean, for most people, yes, there's a lot of economic pain. We might even go into a long recession but the reality is that most people here are going to at least have enough food. I mean, I know there's some people in the U S that that's not going to be the case for, but most of us are okay. Yeah. We are going to have some economic pain, but most of us have relatives or some kind of a way to get food. Like we don't have anything like this going on. That to me is the line where you're like, okay, maybe this lockdown isn't worth it.
0: Yeah. And it's a, it's a larger conversation that maybe we could table um, for another time, but that it, you, that is very much the point where you say, look, if your if your goal is to save lives, and it certainly would be my goal, I would imagine it would be a lot of listeners like that would where that be where you start. You say, how can we save lives? These early measures we're seeing, as long as people you don't eat your money, so as long as you're eating food, you have shelter, um, you have things that can keep you alive and sus- it has has that sustainability, um, then you can make sacrifices elsewhere. Where, even if they're extreme economic sacrifices. But to your point, Nate, exactly, if your goal is to save lives and you put in a measure, I mean, I think the analogy would be in the States, if you put in a measure where all of a sudden all our electricity shut off and there was no more food in the supermarkets, then that would be probably doing way more harm uh, than the virus ever could, even though even though the harm of the virus is extremely severe. So yeah, it's a larger conversation for another time, but I think um, really unfortunate to hear that kind of thing. And, and this is what you worry about in places where they don't have the kind of resources or technology uh that we have or a lot of us listening have
2: some of these quotes from Narendra uh, narenda modi another name i'm unfortunately probably mispronouncing uh basically he's, he's owning it he says i apologize for taking these harsh steps that have caused difficulties in your lives especially the poor people i know some of you will be angry with me but these tough measures were needed to win this battle and that the poor would definitely be thinking what kind of prime minister is this who has put us into so much trouble and he's just urging people to understand that are he felt that this is the only option so it's a pretty pretty crazy quotes there what's going on in italy these days who are really uh, in the western world were uh the first to really come under siege
0: yeah it- italy continues you know there's some hope that they would start bending the curve and that their numbers would start to uh, trend downward of course they've been in isolation and lockdown and quarantine and had these kind of measures in place for longer than a lot of uh, other western or united states certainly cities and regions and yet the data unfortunately is continuing if you look at the um, number of deaths, they're, you know, seven, eight, 900 a day and not starting to trend downward. Now, are we at the crest and it could start moving downward? I don't think there's a clear way to say, you can be optimistic about it, but um, just a little unfortunate that this continues. If you think about trying to bend that curve downward, this peak continues to extend day after day, after day, after day. Um, And then apparently something like, you know, an estimate of 20% of healthcare workers or the number I saw this morning, I couldn't, Find the source, but over six thousand healthcare workers uh, have been infected in Italy, and according to the New York Post, as of this morning, there's over over fifty who have uh, died from coronavirus.
2: And I've said it before, but I mean this is this is what we're going to be facing. What Italy has gone through, I, mean, I, I I think there's no reason to believe that it's going to be any better here than it has been in Italy. Um, finally, the UK, uh, Britain's deputy chief medical officer, uh, Jenny harry's
0: I think you got, I think you got that one right just as a as a positive <laughs> yeah. yeah leave on a high
2: note uh she warned that life may not return to normal for six months or more and they are going to review their lockdown every three weeks uh, her quote was, We must not then revert suddenly to our normal way of living. Uh, If we stop, then all of our efforts would be wasted and we could potentially see a second peak. And, you know, I I think that's uh, to say, hey, it's going to be a minimum of three weeks. I I think that's probably the right move. I think we need to be honest with our populations about what they need to be prepared for. uh, Yeah. Rather rather than just, ah, you know, it's a week or so. I, I mean, maybe when it's first instituted you can you can do that to, but then i think pretty quickly on you have to say no this is going to last for a lot longer um and, and there's
0: precedent and, yeah there's precedent there the 1918 pandemic um which we can if we have time later in the week maybe dive a little bit more into you know there's precedent in terms of how long cities had social distancing had quarantine measures in place were locked down um, a lot of places had a second wave there is a lot of precedent for this kind of thing how long it how much time it takes and then kind of what happens when you try to open things back up and stuff bounces back so um yeah i think i think having a, a realistic approach is probably really healthy in the long run um but, you know, I, I'm, I'm always an optimist. I continue to try to say like, okay, we've, we're, we're here, we are at phase one. So what we need to do is continue to take the right measures, continue to reinforce our stockpiles, improve our testing, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and maybe we can get to it uh, in another episode this week, then maybe you can get to places where, all right, now we can open this back up. This is how this would work, et cetera, et cetera. There's kind of, the idea is there's a blueprint out there for us to start to return to normalcy, but the normalcy and status quo won't be what it was in the past for a while
2: yeah and and that's something i definitely want to talk about later this week too is just what is our plan uh, to get out of this uh, here in the u.s uh, and in the world so all right well Thanks again for for doing this, Ben, and uh, we will try to keep you updated. I'm not sure we're going to do this every day, but we're going to try and do it uh, at least a a fair amount going forward. We really appreciate your support. If you think that this is worthwhile, I would very much appreciate, as would Ben, just tell a friend about this, maybe even someone who's not interested in the NBA at all. And from the feedback that we've gotten, it has been great. We've been taking some of it to heart, but a, a lot of people seem to have really found this useful uh, and you know i'm not sure that there are that many people out there doing this type of aggregation in in podcast form so uh hopefully this is something that can be useful to more people and we uh very much appreciate your support so we'll talk to you all next time
0: at amica insurance
2: we know it's more than just a car it's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive the hatchback that took you cross country and back